I think that the problem is that a lot of times when people disagree, they don't realize that they're disagreeing with a lived experience of somebody else's. And so when people disagree with those things, they're telling me that they're disagreeing with something that I've actually gone through, which is not possible because they weren't there and they didn't experience it. So it's about listening to other people and then having your mind open to the fact that there are whole experiences out there that you don't go through. Shishi Rose is a Brooklyn-based writer and activist with work centering on race and women's rights. I met her at a community event in Los Angeles that she organized, calling for unity and healing after the 2016 U.S. presidential election. The town hall-style meeting was attended by people of color and members of the LGBTQ and disabled communities. And yet, just a small group of white men hijack the conversation, talking only to one another, and sometimes even over one another. My name is Graham High. I'm a straight white guy. After this community meeting, I realized that there was a lot of talking and not a lot of listening, especially from people like me. I am not a trained therapist. I'm just a guy who wants to understand people who aren't like me, who live lives that aren't like mine, people like Shishi. I sat with Shishi in New York City at the appropriately named Center for Remembering and Sharing to discuss what it means to be a white ally. This is Straight White Guy Listening. I would like to start kind of where I first met you, of course, it was during a community meeting after the election, and you facilitated it, and it definitely opened up my eyes, and it was kind of the genesis for this project, in a way. And you wrote a beautiful email saying, like, you know, white people come with your palms open, not with your fists clenched. And I thought that was powerful. And, of course, it didn't go exactly the way I thought it would. Yeah. <laughs> I would like to hear your perspective on it, or I could kind of set up what I saw. If that's uh, maybe we can talk about both, because it would be nice to hear both perspectives. Um, it was interesting also, it was my first event that I had organized that was that large. I expected maybe like 40 people and then like over 100 showed up and so then I was just like, okay, so I like really have to do this. It was interesting just because I wrote that email and I realized that there would be some pushback. I mean, it wasn't surprising that it was like the white straight men that were obviously the ones with the most pushback in the room. And I remember like during one of the arguments that happened between the men, there were some women that got up and walked out too, but they did so like totally quietly. The only reason I saw them was because I was like facing them. But um, then like when the guy got angry, he like stormed off. He's like, I guess this isn't for me. He, like slammed the door and it was just kind of interesting. And it reminded me of like how men, but also just like white people in general, take up space and rooms and make sure to like announce themselves or to make sure that everybody knows that they're not okay with something. And it just showed me that we have a lot of work to do. Um, and after that, I had some events where I like, men came and they weren't allowed to talk and like stuff like that so it was it was interesting for me but it helped me to figure out how to do this a little bit better to realize that we have to like go at it differently and like hit different corners and stuff um it was also interesting because everybody in that room was seemingly on the same side um but there were bernie people and there were hillary people and i remember saying like this isn't the election anymore like we're here for like strategy we're not here because we want to fight about bernie should have won or hillary for prison or whatever 
It was a very interesting discussion, seeing people that will fight to the death with each other, even though they're supposed to be believing in the exact same things. No, it was uh, really surprising. I think everybody was very, very emotional. It's kind of crazy because I, um, I grew up religious, and so I wasn't allowed to vote. And so this election cycle was like my first time voting, first time getting involved in politics. So I like hit the books hard, like learning all this stuff and fully like trying to understand what all the seats meant and everything. And it's just so wild that like my first time voting, it turned into this. But I decided after the election was over and everybody was totally torn up that I needed to do something to just make it seem like it wasn't so bleak. Um, so after it was over, I started planning a couple things throughout New York and then I planned to go to LA and just like have a little hosting activist event and see if I could get people like strategized and get them like fueled up because I realized that we were going to be fighting for a while. And I knew that all the things that he promised during his campaign run, he would like bring to fruition now, which is happening. You know, everything that he said he was gonna do, he's been doing and more. So I think that opened my eyes a lot that we, I'm talking about straight white men, just take space and it's hard for us to listen. Yeah. I mean, I think understanding that and being able to find the balance between like taking up space and actually like doing good in the room is a hard balance to find because when you walk around the world with privilege, then you don't even know what it's like to not have a privilege in that area. So then it is hard to understand how you're taking up space. I mean, even me being like a woman and a cisgendered woman. So I take up different space than other people are gonna take up. And so I have to be very aware of that when I'm in a room with trans people. And I think that we just have to like start to look at these things differently and see how we can like shift the weight in the room to basically just amplify the other voices in the room, even if we are also speaking. Um, what was very intense about the mo that moment when I was hosting that event was that I also expected more people of color to show up and I think it wasn't until that event that I realized how like white women didn't realize a lot of things. I mean, I knew that they didn't like understand, but I I thought that the people that were like on our side, like those white women, they understood how deep this went and it, it would just them coming in like huge amounts to that particular event that I organized was just kind of like an eye-opening experience for me that there's still so much of the problem, even when they try so hard to pull themselves away and act like white supremacy doesn't apply to them or that they don't benefit from it. And even when they are the ones that are claiming to be activists or are in our same circles of friends, and there's still so much of the problem, they're still benefiting from all of these things that I am talking about every day or I'm oppressed by every day. And um, there's just so much work to do. And they're always shifting the lens of white supremacy onto the right or on to men. And every time they do that, I like to remind them that somebody had to make the robes for the KKK members' children. And you know, somebody made them for the men and somebody organized the rallies and there were entire like chapters for women. And in the 1920s, I just read that there was like the first women's chapter and there was a million women in the women's chapter in the 1920s. I was like, those women didn't just like disappear and they didn't all just like stay on the right. They all had kids and those kids grew up and they decided like who they were gonna vote for later, but they still had those same embedded mentalities in them. Um, so I feel like since that event, my focus has like shifted less towards like all white people and more towards like white women because they're the ones who I'm like butting heads with constantly and in this battle with. Cause I mean like even online when I'm discussing activism, men 
F, they disagree with me. They make it very, they make me very aware they disagree with me. They insult me, all of that. So I can just like block them, move on and it's over. I know that nothing's going to come out of that. But white women are very insidious with the way that they project their racism and their internalized misogyny and how they mix it all together. And it's just very interesting. Um, I learned a lot myself from that event. I chose not to keep traveling and having more because it was emotionally taxing, but I would like to continue at some point, but just the focus would need to not be on the election, but maybe even midterms in general or just activism. But um, I think with the focus being on the election after like the entire year and a half of all the work that I did for the election, it was just too much to keep going. Um, and realizing like how much more work actually needed to be done than I thought needed to be done. I think uh, after the election, there was this huge desire to get things done, to do something. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, this is gonna be a while. Like it's just going to be an ongoing thing. So I think a lot of uh, white people or people in general, but wanna get involved and they wanna do it, but then it's, you, you don't quite know how to do it in a way. or. Or let me let me take it this way. To go back to the event, you said something that if Hillary had won, the white people wouldn't be there in the room mm -hmm. to be like, oh, we got to do something. We would have just kind of gone on in our usual way, just kind of, all right, we got a white female president, we're progressing, we're going on, and then all these other causes kind of just kind of stays stagnant. So it sounds like you're in this new kind of era, I guess it's intersectionality that you're really trying to take care of. It's like, oh, the election happened, but now we have to own all of this. Like you can't yeah. just take it, pick and choose. Which is why I said that if I did continue those workshops, I wouldn't be focusing on like presidency because all of these things existed, existed way before Trump was ever president. They existed long before Hillary was running for president. They have always been a part of this country. And they everybody would have gone home if Hillary had won because the glass ceiling would have been broken. Never mind the fact that like black and brown women would have been left to pick up all the shards of glass that she broke, but they would have just gone home and went back to their lives and their privilege and say that they accomplished something big because a white woman was in office. The same way that so many people did that for Obama. And then eight years later, they complained about the fact that he didn't accomplish everything they wanted him to accomplish. But how do they accomplish anything if we go home? And also if we don't work our asses off to get the right people in those seats that are surrounding him. So that was my also the big problem that I had with this election is that we were focusing so much on the presidents and not enough about the people that were surrounding the presidents. And as we've seen since Trump has been in office, they have been most of the ones causing most of the issues. They're just talking in his ear and telling him what to say. And so it's our job to take back those seats, to put the right people in those seats. And we can't do that if we just elect people and go home and don't do the work. And a lot of people, they come to me and tell me about how tired they are. They've been working for six months, you know, doing all this work. And I'm just like, honey, I've been working for 27 years as a black person. And every day is some sort of strategic like plan and effort that I have to like go through just to like navigate my way through this world. And especially given the fact that if you are complaining, you're probably a person with privilege because most black people aren't complaining. We're just like, yeah, we're in the streets and we're probably gonna get shot. And there's cops joking about like shooting black people and there's full on white supremacist rallies, but we're still like out here. So yeah, it's, it's hard to stay motivated and keep going because this resistance work is not something that most privileged people are 
used to having a part of their life where like every part of their life has this reflected in it but we are and even when we're not actual activists as black people just our existence is an act of activism so i think that people need to just work harder and stop complaining to marginalized people and if they want to complain complain to their peers and their peers would be other white people they can tell those white people how frustrated they are with their family and how they have to now have the like discussion with their racist family members and how they're upset about that. That would be a conversation for their white friends. So there's a lot of little things people can do, even if they're not like out in the street marching, to just take the weight off of the people who are already the most oppressed. So there's a lot that you just gave me there, and uh, I'm, I'm gonna try to unpack it a little bit. Something I just recently spoke to was complaining and complaining between peers. And I, I, I hear what you're saying, but I just want to understand it a little bit further. So white people are joining the fight, or they're trying to, and then while they're getting into it, they're complaining about the workload, the, yeah. the workload, what it takes. They got homework and they expected to just like go to school all day and not have homework to go home. So it's white people, if they are upset about the workload of being an ally, should not necessarily go to a black person and be like, oh my God. No, because why dump more on the person who already has the biggest fight? It's like we're carrying boulders around and now they're like also throwing rocks at us and asking us to carry one of their boulders too because it's too heavy for them because they've never had to carry it before. But meanwhile, we've been carrying that same boulder our entire lives. So um, yeah, and not to say that they're not allowed to be tired because this is tiring work but I don't want to hear about it. And other black people don't want to hear about it. And it's not our job to carry their fears or their concerns or their weight. It is our job to exist. And if we decide to be out there fighting and doing activist work, then that is a job that we are taking on. But that is also not uh, a responsibility of ours. Um, I think that a lot of white people have gotten the idea in their head that it is the job of the marginalized to educate them. And so with that education, they think that they can come and dump their burdens onto the marginalized people. Like just because some of us have taken on the role of education doesn't mean that that's our job. And it doesn't mean that we hold space for anything else. Like if I teach somebody about a particular topic, that doesn't mean that I also need to take on their anxiety when it comes to them teaching other people about that particular topic. Um, yeah, like I get direct messages on Instagram all the time of white people being like, Shishi, will you please pray for me as I go and like have these conversations with my parents? And I'm just like, no, first of all, I don't believe in God. <laughs> Second of all, like I'm not praying for you. I'm not holding any more space for you. I provide a platform where I educate you. You want to take that information? Take it. If not, like that's not my problem. But I have nothing else that I need to offer you besides that. And if you need support, then I'm not even the person that can offer it because I don't know what it's like to be a white person and have to go and talk to your racist white family members about their racism. That would be something to talk to another white person about. Um, and that was actually one of the reasons why um, at that event in LA, I at the end made everybody like meet each other because I wanted them to have another person that they could talk to that was also in this fight with them that can A, like push them to go further, but B, support them through it because I'm not about to do that and other black people shouldn't have to do that. Yeah, it is a problem, though, the amount of stuff that people expect uh, activists to carry, especially black activists and especially black women. So it sounds like you have your own struggle, your own fight, and then you're almost expected unconsciously to carry, you know, a white ally's fight as well. Like maybe they think they're trying to share something, but instead it feels like 
an extra thing for you to deal with. Am I yeah. understanding it? Yeah, I think they think that because we're both doing resistance work, we're like now on the same level. So we're basically just like sharing with each other, but we're not because if I stop doing all of the activist work that I do, I'm still resisting every single day by walking down the street. You know, anytime I get on the subway and some white person touches my hair without my consent, I still have to resist that and deal with that issue. Anytime I have to deal with racism and sexism at the exact same time, that is another issue that those same white ladies that want to talk to me like we're on the same level, they don't have to deal with. So they think that we're very similar because we're doing very similar work, but they don't understand that I'm also fighting it as a person. And that is an aspect that they don't have to deal with. They can fight these issues and support these issues without enduring these issues. Are there specific ways you could kind of walk me through how people, even though they're trying to be allies, perpetuate you know, oppression or ignorance or something like that? Um, I mean, I think that there's a lot of laziness involved when it comes to being a white ally. Um, it's very easy to say that you want to be a part of this fight or that you want to support these people or that you care about all people and that you want equality even though you don't understand that in order to have equality you need equity. And um, it's very easy to throw yourself in there and put on a safety pin and a Black Lives Matter pin and you know, go and make a protest sign. But the harder part of it is to examine how you're perpetuating these things in your own life and how your voice can stifle other people's voices. And it's harder to realize that you directly benefit from the thing that you're saying that you hate, which is white supremacy. And so in the process, as they're saying that they want to help, what they do is say, how can I help? Constantly, constantly, constantly. White people are saying, how can we help? What can we do to fight this issue? The thing is, Google is your best friend. Um, and this is coming from a black person who uses Google like religiously. Like if I had a religion, it would be Google because all I'm doing all day is Googling things, whether it's like the correct spelling of things or if it's like an article that I want to reference or read or a podcast or whatever. And it's crazy because I have people that will come like to me online and they will be like, is reverse racism real? And I'm just like, do you have Google? Because if you Google that, if you just put that question in there, probably 15 articles will pop up written by people of color explaining in depth whether or not this thing that you keep hearing on the internet is real or not. So I think that the laziness is the thing that is the reason why we cannot connect and cannot be on the same side because people are just expecting to be handed information on a silver platter as, ex as opposed to like going and like looking at for it themselves, which is what everybody has done. We have this huge internet base where all of this information is right here, where you can type something in and it can pull it from all different directions and people are not utilizing it to educate themselves. And I don't really understand that. Um, maybe it's just because I like to learn and I've always liked to learn and like to read. Um, but I think it's also just their privilege showing and lack of critical thought. And even people with the best intentions want to take the hard work out of this as if this is supposed to be easy. You know, there's numerous books in the world. There's podcasts, there's YouTube videos, there um, are like Instagram pages. There's so much information out there that there's no reason to still be going individually to black women and asking them like more than 80% of these questions that have already been answered by other black women in articles that at least some of them got paid for. It's very interesting the questions that people ask that are just so easily figured out. And sometimes you don't even need to Google if you just use critical thought. And I think, and that's why when I wrote that email for my event in LA that I said, come with your palms open and not with closed fists, because a lot of times people ask questions, but when they ask them, they already have the but forming in their head. 
So they ask me and then I answer it and they're like, well, or but, and then I know that I've lost them at that point because they're not gonna listen to anything else that I said because their opinions already been formed in their head. I think that we need to take it back when we start to learn and view learning as we did when we were kids. When we were kids and somebody told us something, we asked a question, we didn't say but, we asked a question to further understand the thing that they were telling us and then we took the information. And that's why it's so important to educate children because they're sponges but we stopped being sponges and now we're just like concrete piles of people and nothing gets absorbed anymore because we think that we know everything already and none of us know everything. So it seems like some people just don't want to even deal with all the problems that are systematic that they're benefiting from yeah. and not do the hard work. Uh, and that's a little, you know, if you, if you have the ability to not do that work. I mean, I get it. Like, why would anyone want to work if they don't have to work? And the only way that I frame this is that we, as people of color, are not the only people under attack with this. By having a government and a system that looks like ours does, it affects everybody. And so even though white people have their privilege and they don't want to give it up, they don't understand how they're also being controlled and how they're also being played by the system and how all the poor white people are being played by the system because they want poor white people to hate people of color. So then we keep butting heads and we don't unite together. And so that is why so many of them voted for Trump, because they were willing to put their whiteness first and rise above everybody else than to realize that if we stuck together that we could actually be stronger. And you know, just like what happened in Charlottesville, the woman who died was white. White people are still have the ability to be oppressed by the same things that we are oppressed by. And I think that because they have so much privilege, they don't see that. But this is not a system that works for anybody. It's not like we're the only ones being oppressed and everybody else is just like walking through life and it's fine. You know, last year, police officers killed almost a thousand people. And I mean, probably 80, 85% of those are people of color, but there were still some white people in there. And no one's talking about that. Like, they're not talking about that. They're not in the streets talking about the fact that their white people have been killed by police officers. And it happens often. And um, I've been to rallies for black people. And on some of the signs, there's like a face of a white person that got killed by a cop because we are trying to tell everyone that this fight is all of ours because even though you have privilege and even though you benefit from these systems, you're still being harmed by them as well. And eventually, if somebody has that much power over us where they're playing the white people and they're playing the people of color, then they can fully take control and then everyone can lose power entirely. I, I would like to talk about privilege and maybe you can... So part of what I want to do is someone who's just watching or listening right now, you know, maybe they're finally trying to really educate themselves. Maybe they're like, all right, I'm going to listen with an open mind. And maybe we'll, we'll try to take that opportunity to really help people understand what privilege is, like what it really means. And what you were talking about is like, you know, we all have different degrees of privilege. We all also are oppressed. So there's a spectrum. Do you think you could walk me through what that is? Like if someone doesn't know what privilege is? I mean, first of all, there is universal oppression that anybody can have. You know, we could all lose our job at any moment. We could all lose somebody that we care about and have to go through loss. There's universal oppression that anybody, no matter what color of your skin or what orientation or religion you are, you can experience. And that is any human being. And then there's racial oppression. And all people are not experiencing racial oppression. 
So what people need to understand is that, yes, we can all have this universal oppression and we can all be going through things, but then being a person that's going through all those same human experiences, but then also facing racial oppression too, or being a woman of color and facing oppression as a woman and facing racial oppression and facing universal oppression, it just adds on to the pile. And having any sort of privilege doesn't negate the oppression that you're facing. You still have those things that you're going through. You still have to live your life as whatever person you are every single day and whatever that means. But you still have to understand that if you have privilege in a certain area, then your experiences with those things will be different than somebody who doesn't have your privileges. You know, I am a black woman, but I was also born in a first world country. I'm English speaking. I'm young. Um, I am not trans, I'm able-bodied, I, those are all privileges that I have. And so when I'm in a space with other people, I realize that if there's other people that have any of those other oppressions, then I potentially could be talking over them. Especially, say I was in a room with somebody and there were people that were not able-bodied and the discussion was on ableism. Why would I speak in that room or um, speak over or first, like over anyone else when there's people with disabilities in that room. It is acknowledging that sometimes you can speak and sometimes you can't. And sometimes you can fully feel your oppression and be the most oppressed person in the room. And sometimes you're not. And sometimes you need to use whatever privilege you have to uplift or amplify the other people that are in the room. When I say the room, I mean society and everything and not just like in an organizing meeting, but in our day-to-day interactions and in the way that we write our think pieces and in the way that we talk online. Yeah, I think privilege is really misunderstood because people think that when you tell them that they have privilege, that you're telling them that they didn't like work hard for something or that something was like handed to them. And for some people, it was handed to them. Life was handed to them. But, you know, I'm not saying that by having privilege, you didn't work hard for your job or that you don't go through anything in life. It's just saying that people have different experiences. And this is where equity comes in, that it's not you can't you can't strive for equality because equality would be giving everybody the same platform of the same level. Well, if some people are shorter than putting them all on the same platform, they still can't see where they need to see. Some people need an extra step on that platform. Some people need two, some people need three extra steps, and some people don't need the platform at all. So it's just about making sure that everybody's voices get heard. And I think that because for so long we have been used to only hearing the voices of white people, that that has become the norm. No matter what platform it's on or where it's at, the norm has always been to hear white voices. So any challenge to that would feel like a threat. And that is the pushback that we get in conversations with white people where they instantly say, but whenever we speak about something, when the biggest thing is just to listen to other people's experiences. I think that the problem is that a lot of times when people disagree, they don't realize, and maybe they do, that they're disagreeing with a lived experience of somebody else's. You know, most of the things that people of color or other marginalized people write online, those are not just opinions. These are things that we live through every day. And so when people disagree with those things, they're telling me that they're disagreeing with something that I've actually gone through, which is not possible because they weren't there and they didn't experience it. So it's about listening to other people and then having your mind open to the fact that there are whole experiences out there that you don't go through. As a white man, it took me a long time to realize that there are different experiences that what I struggle with is, like what you were saying, is just a generic oppression. You know, I have my own hardships that I gotta go through. Uh, it wasn't until I moved to Los Angeles that I, I was in a checkout line 
and I realized that everyone around me wasn't a, a white person, a white guy. I heard different languages and people of all different cultures. And that was like my first moment of, oh, I'm not just like standard. I feel like the feeling is like default. Like I am just a normal person. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that privilege does in a way is that you think your experience is the experience and not realizing that you are white or male or all these other things that may define you. Yeah, I mean, even look at the way that media is represented, like taking race out of the equation. Almost every love story that we see depicted on TV or film is a straight couple. And so if we see that everywhere, then we're going to think that that's the norm and that anything different than that is something wrong with it. So just like think back on like everything that you watched as a kid. It's always boy, girl, boy, girl. Everybody that is in love with each other, it's those two people. It's no one else is ever represented. And so when we are those sponges as children and we're taking all that information in and we're only seeing one way to be and everybody is telling us that we're going to grow up and we're going to get married. If we're a girl, we're going to get married to a boy. And if we're a boy, we're going to get married to a girl and we're going to have kids in this whole life. Then that's the only narrative that we come up with in our head. And then as the sponge slowly starts to fill up with concrete, then that is just molded into us. And so with race, everything depicted around us is whiteness. And this is why I talk about the importance of representation in the media, because it is so important to have what the world looks like reflected back to us, because the media reflects the way the actual world, the way they want the actual world to look. And a lot of people think that, you know, TV and movies are not important, but those are the things that have molded us since we had, like, thoughts about any of these topics. And, I mean, every, almost every Disney movie was the lead person and everybody else was white. And then we had Pocahontas, who was colonized, but then, like, forced to get with John Smith. And then the only, like, badass one back then was, like, Mulan. But... Like, every other person was white. And so I grew up thinking that, like, whiteness was the default as well. And so it's not just white people that thought that that was a default. By four or five, I already knew that I was, like, an anomaly. So, and then having the experiences that I had at four and five of being in school and being called the N-word and having kids, like, tell me that I was too dark and, like, all these things, those just, like, further reflected what I already knew about myself, that I wasn't the norm and that the norm was whiteness. So it is about everybody unpacking this and changing the way that we are representing people in general. Because when you look at people and walk down the street, the default is not whiteness, it's everything. How does it look for white allies to really join in? Uh, is there something that you think you should see more of? I mean, living in New York City, one thing that comes to mind for me is that whenever I see a police officer stopping a person of color, I stop and I record in case anything happens. I do never, I never see white people do that. And I know that in LA there was um, a like group that was meeting, I think it was white people for black lives maybe, but they were basically doing training for white allies in order to teach them what to do when they like see a cop stop anybody, but especially a person of color to get out your cell phones, ask the person if they're okay. If you see a person that's pulled over and they're a person of color, like stop and pull your car over too and like record them. And that is something that I don't see white people doing enough of. And I've never seen a white person in New York do that. It's always black people that are filming. The other day I stopped and the cops were harassing a pregnant black woman and I wasn't gonna keep going with my day and walk away and then hear that like something happened. Cops have been beating up pregnant black women for a long time and we have footage of that. but. 
I think having that footage come from the lens of a white person is very different than having that footage come from the lens of a black person repeatedly. Black people have been recording. Black people have been showing this evidence. But to have a white person record it and then to therefore speak about it afterwards and say that they were the person that got this footage and why this is wrong and put themselves in that place, those are things that I don't see happening. And that is the real like nitty gritty work of all of this. It's not just like talking to their racist uncle before Thanksgiving or, um, you know, having a conversation with their friends about why Tina Fey's skit about Charlottesville was racist. It is so much bigger than that. It's about actually like putting yourself in the fight and putting yourself in the fight means challenging the racist systems. And that includes the police officers at the forefront. And they don't like that because obviously that's scary. But the thing about it is, is having privilege as a white person, you're far less likely to be harmed or have to undergo any sort of extra oppression by speaking out or by putting yourself in that situation. I mean, there have been black people that have filmed and had cops like pulled the guns on them because they were filming or the guy that filmed Eric Garner's murder was stalked by police officers for what, a year and a half after that before they finally arrested him. So using your whiteness to put it in that place because you know that the cop's not gonna shoot you. And I think that people are also very scared now because of what happened in Charlottesville and the fact that the woman that died was a white woman. But that would just go back to privilege because they assume that the only people that should be dying during this are people of color. But we've already been dying because of this for centuries. So why shouldn't white people be dying to fight this as well? Why shouldn't everybody be putting their lives on the line to fight this? And as tragic as it was, Heather Hare went there that day and she knew that she was entering a very violent situation and that there were white supremacists fully punching people and possibly worse and she decided to go there because that's what allies do they step up and they show up and it doesn't matter if it's dangerous and that's what people of color have been doing but um yeah the fear is something that i hear a lot from white people that they don't want to protest because they're fearful that they don't want to put themselves in these situations because they're fearful and what i'm confused about is do they think that i'm not fearful that I go to these things or that I exist every day without fear or that I can like teach and do all of these things and not be afraid that something's gonna happen one day as if I don't also have a target on my back for being a black woman and speaking about these things as if black activists are not constantly being murdered or disappearing. Um, you know, Sandra Bland was an activist and there are so many activists throughout Ferguson that have disappeared or have died and it's, they've just told everybody that they committed suicide. So I want people to understand that their fear is valid, yes, because it's a dangerous situation, but I don't care about their fear because I live with fear every single day and you cannot fight this without being afraid of what might happen because it's a dangerous thing that we're fighting. Stepping back to filming the cops, which I've never, I've never thought about stopping and filming the cops and that makes sense, you know? Yeah. And it makes sense that you say that a white person saying, yes, I shot this, I saw this, ha it gives it some more credibility be because of the way it is. Yeah. Do you think that white bodies in these marches is privilege used in a way to help the cause, but not in a white savior? I, I want to try to walk that line to be that, you know, you have privilege, but in some ways it helps the fight for me, sometimes with protesting, it's very tricky whether or not those white bodies are actually helping or if they're harming. For instance, um, I'm one of the Women's March organizers, 
and I heard different accounts of different things that happen at different women's marches throughout the country. We were in DC, and so we have no control over like what happens in other places. But I know specifically at certain women's marches, there were white people there that were basically like making fun of the Native American people that were like in their traditional garb. And that would be an example of their white body not helping in a situation. That yes, they're there in numbers, but they're not there as allies. They're there to dominate with whiteness. And so that's why I bring up other things like filming the cops because there are other ways to use your bodies, and there are other used to be way. There's other ways to be that white human shield. And I mean, I've seen pictures too of protests where cops were really like going hard on the people of color at the rally, and white people formed a straight line in front of them and blocked the police officers. So anything that happened, it had to get through them first. And then we see the cops not fully do what they would have done if it was black people with that line there. So there's so many different ways to use your body and to stand up for something. Um, I had a friend um, in New York City that would just wear a protest sign all over New York City, like just walk around and just like have different stuff written on it. And that was a way to use her body for something. That no matter where she went, somebody knew what she stood for and it could start conversations. And she argued with people and some people like agreed with her and had good conversations. And what's good about that is that even through the arguments or the people agreeing, it's not even about those people that she was talking to directly. It's about anybody else that was listening that maybe hear something in those conversations that she's having with them or the argument. And they can maybe change their perception of something because they saw her wearing that sign. So it is about getting really creative about how you can use your body and your privilege to fight this thing because at the end of the day, it's just another white person walking down the street with a protest sign on their body. Black person does that and they're harassed or like somebody throws trash at them or something. Like we have to really think about what neighborhoods we're gonna be walking through before we put a protest sign on us. Yeah, it's just being creative and realizing that there's really so many ways you can do that. I mean, even if you take like actual activism and like being in the streets marching and you take that out of the equation, you can challenge these systems in your own families and your job. You know, you can push for more diversity in the workplace. You can push for better pay. You can, there's so many things that you can do to use your whiteness for privilege and as that shield in between white supremacy and the oppressed person. Are there, are there other ways that you can maybe, like even just small ways of being an ally? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing here is emptying your pockets into the right places. Um, you don't have to be on the streets marching, but money does need to be put into organizations that are doing the groundwork and that are fighting all the things they need to fight. Even if like putting money into like arts programs for people of color so that they can like write and change the narrative that we're so used to seeing depicted on screen. You know, there's a reason that media looks the way that it does and that's because art schools are predominantly white and the kids who get the scholarships or the kids who have money to go to these schools are white. So. If you have money, using that to help better something in some way that can help the bigger cause. I tell people all the time, just donate to something. And then don't use your white savior complex and go post about everywhere like how you donated to this place. Do so silently. I remember reading something like years ago about all the organizations, like somebody had compiled a list of all these organizations that Angelina Jolie had donated to. And I'd never heard about any of that. Like you, People Magazine's not talking about this. She's not going on stage and talking about it. She's just donating, just putting her money to good use and she's not bragging about it. That is a perfect example of just using your white privilege to put it into something. And you know that there's other ways that for white people that don't have money. Um, I told a friend of mine 
you know, just to like help people in smaller ways. So she like babysits for one of her neighbors of color who can't afford childcare and she does it for free and she doesn't brag about it. She's just like, okay, yes. And your kids can eat over here whenever they want. That is using it for good by helping this mom be able to go to work every day and know that her kids are safe. So there's billions of tiny ways. Um, I even compiled an entire list on my website at like three o'clock in the morning one day because I was just tired of people asking me the same question over and over again. I was just like, really all of this is just being a decent human being. Can you talk about what being a decent human really looks like. I think that our society is very much lacking empathy and compassion for other people, which is why it's so easy for people to um, uh, contradict, I guess, other people's experiences. So it's like if somebody tells us an experience and our first, our first thing that we wanna do is like fight about it or give our own opinion about it. We don't have empathy for the situation that the person is telling us about. So until we can learn to listen to all people's experiences and have compassion for them and fully listen without having anything to say, just listening sometimes, until we can learn to do that, then we're going to still have this divide that exists because we want to talk over the things that other people go through. Um, yeah, I mean, it just reminds me of like, when you're going through something and your friends don't really know how to help, but sometimes they just come and they like sit with you. That's what allies need to do sometimes. They need to just like sit and listen and be there for the person. Sometimes there are no words to say because you don't know what to say for other people's experiences sometimes. Just being there and acknowledging that what happened is messed up and that you're gonna try your best to support this person is the best thing that you can possibly do. I think that's really hard for people to do in general. Yeah. Just to be there you want to fix a situation, it's really hard to just be in the problem. Yeah, or figure out other ways to help without verbalizing those ways. Like friends coming over after the, somebody loses someone that they love and just cleaning the house. Not being there and saying, oh, I'm gonna like make you talk about what you're going through right now or I'm gonna try to give you advice. Just cleaning your house, maybe feeding your dog doing little things like that, like that's the allies work, is that they should be doing all these other little things over here as opposed to constantly trying to get us to talk about our experiences or constantly talking over our experience or trying to advise us. Um, that is a constant thing that I get from white allies of them especially telling me ways that they think that I, it would we would have more progress if I did things differently as an activist. It is a very tricky thing to understand, and it takes people years to understand how they can like properly do this, and I understand. I'm not really patient with them because I don't have time to like sit and hold their hand and walk them through it and give them the information if they want it, they want it, but it does take people years to understand how to have full empathy for other people and just listen to their experiences and figure out other ways to help without bombarding them with questions and everything. You've uh, you talked a lot about white supremacy here and there. I mean, can you paint the picture of what that looks like? Not only just the KKK marching, but I, I assume in a way that the systematic white supremacy in America. Yeah, it's everything. It's our prison systems. It is the fact that people of color are hired at a less rate than white people. It is the way that we are treated by white people when we're out and about on the street. It is black mothers having the highest maternal death rate and infant mortality rate because of racism in the medical field. 
it's everything. Um, yeah, it is so often looked at as a um, KKK thing. And also the fact that like the KKK members have like dominated the white supremacy scene when really there's so many white supremacist groups throughout the country. Um, so that's a problem because we're just totally ignoring all these other white supremacy groups and focusing on these KKK members. But it's everything. And that's why it's so hard for people to understand that they benefit from it because they don't realize that whiteness and the way that we're viewing whiteness in society and the way that it is upheld, that is white supremacy. It's everything. It is the movies that we watch. It's the industry that is making the movies. It's all of it. Um, and it benefits everybody because it affects everything. Is there a way that white people can see through it? Uh, I mean, it's, it's a hard question, I know. But it's a, how do you break that? How do you see the world? For how it is. For how it is. I mean, I mean I, that's I hard, but yeah, I mean. Yeah, because I mean, everybody has to get to that process on their own, and it goes back to the empathy and being able to look at things differently and listen to other people's experiences. Because when you hear those experiences, it starts to make you question your own experiences, and then you start to look at the world differently. But everybody is going to get there at their own pace if they get there at all. Obviously, I see these things because I'm black and I grew up as a black person and my experiences are black. And so I've always seen all of the way that all of this works. And I've seen how insidious racism is and how white supremacy works its way into everything. Um, but for a white person, yeah, that process is going to be much more difficult because they're inside of it and they benefit from it. And you can't see what you're benefiting from when what you're benefiting from has always been the norm because then that would mean that you need to challenge every experience that you've ever had and every conversation you've had and everything that you've done. And then when you challenge that, now you're going to start to see how you've been complacent in perpetuating white supremacy. And it's a bad feeling to feel just the same way that anybody with any privilege can see how they have perpetuated these things. Um, growing up religious, I can look back and see how I perpetuated so much homophobia, and that is me being a queer woman now, because I grew up with a mentality that gay people were bad and trans people were bad, and so those were all things that I had to unlearn. So yeah, it is hard, but it's something that needs to be done. But there is no like guide to how to like get there faster. I just think that the first step is being able to listen to the experiences of others, because then it just shifts your whole worldview. And the easiest way to do that is just to follow a bunch of different types of people on social media. You know, I probably am following like a thousand people on Instagram and I don't know, 30% of those are people that I actually know and the rest of those are people who I saw them and they were talking about their experiences and I listened to them. And it's being very selective over which types of people that you're going to um that you're going to look in on their lives. Because obviously I don't want a bunch of white people going and following Raven Simone and thinking that that is like the black like thing or like Stacey Dash and like Ben Carson and being like, yeah, I'm following black people. No, it's talking, it, it's listening to black people that are talking about their experiences and that are bringing up issues that we've never heard before, not people of color who are agreeing with white supremacy like those people are. So it's a process, but the easiest way to do that is just to change the way that the feeds that you're scrolling in every day look. And then before long, you're just like, wow, there's black people all over my feed, and I'm used to seeing white people all over my feed, and now this is changing. And then suddenly you're watching a movie, and you're just like, wow, there's a lot of white people in this movie. And then maybe the next movie that you watch, you'll try to pick something more diverse. And yeah, it's so easy really to change the way that we like view things but it's just that because the default has always been white we always navigate towards that um i'm supposed to be speaking at a school in brooklyn a private school because a lot of the white kids are being racist to the the kids of color 
And one of the things that they brought up that they have an issue with is that there are no diverse books at the school. And I was like, it's almost like you guys purposefully filled up this library with white books because if you go into Barnes and Nobles, they have entire like book selections where it's like the main child of color in the story or the main child is a child of color in the story. So it's just kind of like crazy to me that you could have an entire library at a school for children and all of the characters are white. It, it's almost like it was done on purpose. Um, so of course it's going to bring up issues where all the kids at the school that are white only see themselves portrayed back to them and read to them. And so obviously they're going to think that anybody that looks different than them is a problem. It just starts that early. Yeah, it should literally start out of the womb. Children know that there are differences. They don't know that those differences are negative or positive until they hear them from society and see them. But children know they could be two and they would be like, you're brown. And I'm like, yes, you're beige. (laughs) Um, But they don't know that there's anything negative associated with that. Those conversations should be had when they barely have language formed. I kind of want to bring it to what the show is. And the show is straight white guy listening. I found in my own life I need to listen more to other experiences. So in a way, I kind of want to open up the show premise itself directly. That, you know, I'm a straight white man, and I was wondering if there was anything you wanted to say to any other straight white man listening via me. If there's anything you want to just directly kind of put out there yeah I mean I think everything that I've said thus far also applies to straight white men there um, is this like notion I guess that like especially when women are speaking or like women of color are speaking that we're speaking directly to white women and even if I say like I'm talking to white women in this space it all applies to white men too it's all a universal thing because they all benefit from white privilege so Uh, White men like to take themselves out of the equation in almost all conversations, but they don't need to do that. They need to listen to every everyone that's speaking, especially people that are oppressed differently than they are. Um, And especially white men need to be listening to black women speak. White men, if they're claiming to be allies, should be reading books written by women of color. They should be reading about racism and the experience specifically of women of color they need to educate themselves in the previous civil rights movement and look at the work especially of women of color because most of the work that was done then was done by women of color and when we look at the civil rights movements we look at what men did we look at their contributions and we don't look at the women that held them up and that supported all the work that they did and that went in the streets and did all the things that they didn't do while they were in interviews So, um, yeah, if your activism isn't being led by a woman of color, then you're probably in the wrong one. Yeah, that's, I mean, that pretty much sums it up for me is that women of color have been speaking these things, have been doing these things, have been challenging these systems, been ready to die and fight in these systems. And it's only, it seems like it makes an impact when a white person dies because of it or when a white person speaks up. But we have all of these examples of women of color leading all of these different things and everything from like labor movements to voting to literally everything throughout history. There has been a black woman at like the root of it. So just listening to black women. And that is my advice to all white people is to listen to black women. Would you like to talk to the women of color? Let's say that there's a young activists, uh, you know, the next generation listening. Is there some kind of advice? Do you have some wisdom? I mean, first and foremost, I think that young people right now don't need to feel like they're personally responsible for changing any of this. 
them existing as a marginalized person is resistance and they do not have to educate anybody they do not have to be out organizing if they choose to do those things and they want to fight those things yes they can do that but there should not be this burden on them to do that they shouldn't feel like they have to um if they're going to do that then they need to make self-care and time for fun almost as important as everything else they cannot be organizing 24 hours a day and not take care of themselves and I have a habit of doing that. I have a habit of putting my own needs last, but we won't last in this. We won't actually get anything accomplished if we're too tired to fight it. Um, and just like I said to white men, that they should be led in their activism by women of color. Other women of color and people of color should be led in their activism by people from previous generations who have already been doing this work. And to any activist, I would say that don't think that what you're doing now or the ideas that you have in your head for activism, that's not new information. It's not like you've stumbled on something new and a way to fight this. This has been done. It's, it's an ongoing fight. We are continuing the fight of other people. So we should be looking at their examples and not mimicking them, but we should be using them as an example of how to continue to do this. Straight White Guy Listening is produced by Graham High and Rebecca Brighthopt. To watch a short film of this conversation and for other episodes, please visit our website at straightwhiteguylistening.com or follow us at SWG Listening on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The SWGL team is Morgan Hanner, Jen Lopez, Alexis Schmidtberger, Sunanda, and Brittany High. Special thanks to Shishi Rose, to the Center for Remembering and Sharing, to Shauna McGarry, to Altimeter Films and the Eisenberg Group. All music composed by Pottington Bear and provided by the Free Music Archive. Follow Shishi on Instagram at shishi.rose, on Twitter at shishi underscore rose to read her advice for allies visit her website shishirose.com slash organizing thank you for listening